Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to cover verses 1 through 5. Great section of scripture, so powerful and filled with just the wisdom and the common sense of God. And the title is, O Foolish Galatians. And the things that the Galatians were experiencing, you can put any, anybody's name there, O Foolish and again, it could be Joe or Old Foolish, whoever. But again, if again they are being bewitched by false teachers. After Paul defended the gospel that he preached in chapter 2 that we looked at last week, which is the good news of justification by faith, apart from the law and works, And it's of a divine origin, and it's able to support itself everywhere at all times. After Paul preached that gospel, he now goes on to show that both Scripture and experience testify to its truth. In other words, what you learn, what you experience in Scripture will be seen in the experience of your life. Word and life will match, should match. Paul turns to experience first of all. That is, the experience that the Galatians themselves had begun to experience when they, by the sovereign grace of God, had accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Paul starts out here by asking the Gentiles, I'm sorry, the Galatians, some questions that really made them search their hearts. And the question is for everybody. Particularly here is to the Galatians, but it's a question that we should all ask ourselves. Deeply search our hearts for the answer. It begins in verse 1. Notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? So, the first thing he asked them was about the ones or the people who bewitched them. He said, oh foolish Galatians. Again, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who are these people? The word foolish here means senseless. The word bewitched means to fascinate by false representations. That's how a serpent catches a bird that has wings and could easily fly away from the snake. If the serpent can search, if the, if if that serpent can catch the bird's eye, in a way it can hypnotize that bird. That serpent can keep that bird spellbound as it slowly creeps, creeps up on it until he can get within striking distance, and then it's all over for the bird. That's what happened to the Galatians here. They were basically hypnotized by the clever arguments of those who deceitfully handle God's word. And Paul is basically saying, hey, Galatians, who's putting this spell on you? It had been done by somebody who was just as fanatical as Paul used to be in his days before Christ. It has to be somebody so committed to Judaism, that is legalism, that not even Jesus' death 
could free them from their positions and their vows. There was something about the law that was very fascinating, bewitching, and seductive to the new Gentile believers, as well as those who were newly saved from Judaism. It had the advantage of being reverenced. I mean, the law was reverenced. It had been uh, going on, it was, and it was old, and it was around for 1,500 years. The sacrifices, the ceremonies, the laws. It had the advantage of being God-breathed. A divine revelation inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by God's finger on stone tablets. But the gullible Galatians couldn't see that God himself tore the veil in two when Jesus was crucified. God tore the veil in two, representing him opening the way to God's presence through Jesus Christ. Just the way Moses smashed the tablets of stone, Judaism was dead. There was something very crafty about using the Bible to support error. And, and that is, it's, and I, you've heard it over the years again and again and again, why it's so important to know the scriptures, to know the Bible. Not just being familiar with it, but knowing it. So that you can recognize the faults from the true. Because again, these people that were fooling the Galatians, that were bewitching the Galatians, they were very crafty and they were using the Bible to do it. They were using the Bible to support their false doctrine. The gullible can easily be, de be, be deceived by those who convincingly say this is what the Bible says. And Satan has tried that tactic and he's still using it when he was tempting Jesus to bow down and worship him in the wilderness. In Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Well, first of all, yes, it says, And Satan said to Jesus, this is when he was uh, in the wilderness, okay, and, and Satan was tempting him. Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down because it is written. Now, okay, Satan's using scripture now. Jesus, if you're truly the son of God, throw yourself down because it says in the scripture that even your angel, even the, his angels will give charge over you. And they will bear you up on their hands lest you strike your foot against the stone. Okay, the devil's quoting Psalm 91, 11 and 12. But he's leaving part of that verse out. Listen to what it says. And again, again, it says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Now, that's the part that Satan left out when he quoted the verse. God says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, notice, in all your ways, that is, in all of your obedience and service to God. When you're serving God, he will take care of you. And, he and then he says, in their hands, the angels' hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So Satan quotes the scripture to Jesus to try to get Jesus to believe Satan and to bow down and worship him. But again, he left out all of the uh, part of the scripture, an important part. Now for smoking marijuana... I remember one time when we first started Calvary Chapel, West Covina. We'd go out to the park, Pastor Rawl and a bunch of us would go out to the park and we witnessed. 
and we were having a, a, a concert, and we were going out and sharing the gospel. And, you know, I was walking up on this guy, and he was smoking weed. And, you know, I just started sharing with him, and, you know, we were talking, and, you know, and I, and I you know, made my way into say, hey, well, you know, uh, God wants us to, to, to be high on him. He says, oh, and, you know, brother, he says, he says, the Bible says that I can smoke weed. And, and, and he quoted Genesis 1.29. And God said, I have given you every herb-bearing seed. <laughs> well, you can take one part of Scripture and make it mean what you want. And, 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 the, and also, the Bible, you know, those that they believe that you shouldn't be poor, that we should be wealthy, they use the Scripture for, for supporting that false doctrine. Again, it, it's a, the Bible says, it says that you should be wealthy, okay, Here's the verse. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth uh, uh, with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power uh, to get wealth. But what they will quote you is that the Bible says that God's given you the power to get wealth. Well, that's not saying that God wants you to be wealthy. The power means he's given you the ability to get wealth if that's God's will for you. All right? He gives us the ability to get wealth if that's his will. It's not saying, hey, you should be wealthy. Also, you shouldn't be sick. There's that people with that, again, the, the, the health, wealth, and prosperity doctor. You shouldn't get sick. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, In my name they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And you've, up down south, you've got these snake handlers that go around handling rattlesnakes, and if you get bit, you know, it's not going to hurt you. Well, I've read plenty of times of these guys getting bit. <laughs> it hurt them. Again, but this is the scripture. We read also uh, when Paul got bit, you know, in the book of Acts, Acts 28, 3, 5. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out uh, because of the heat and fastened on his hand. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, this is the part of the psalm where it says that, you know, uh, God will take care of you if you're being obedient in in your ways and in your service. Paul was serving God when this took place. And when he got bit by the snake, he shook it off because, again, God protected him. You see, when you're serving God, he will watch out for you. He'll take care of you. But, you know, you do these things foolishly, like a lot of these people do. It's not going to cover you because you're tempting the Lord God. It's the old trick that cults use of interpreting the Bible without looking at the context without regard to the purpose of the book where it was found, without regard to the people and particular passage that it was addressed to. You have to look at the content. You have to look at the culture. You have to look at who the people are that the scriptures are talking to and why they're being talked to. You can't just take, well, you can't, that's what they do, take one little sentence out there and make it mean something entirely different. We always have to find out what are the circumstances involved, who wrote the passage, what was the culture of that time? What was the history and the geography that, that formed the background of the passage? 
people who are ignorant of these things or choose to be ignorant of them, they end up twisting the scriptures to meet, to make their, to meet their own gain. You know, to, to, to do their own, their, themselves good. Error will always be error. It doesn't matter who teaches it. It doesn't matter how much you quote the Bible. It's wrong. Error is error. The fact that the Judaizers could use so many Old Testament scriptures to prove their point, is that, that's what bewitched the Galatians. The JWs, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of Christ scientists, they all do the same thing to mesmerize those who will listen to them. And after Paul asked about who seduced them, he asked about their salvation. Look at verse 2. He says, This only I want to learn from you. In other words, hey, I need to know this from you guys. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This is the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The law said do, grace says done. The law said try, grace says trust. The law says behave, grace says believe. The law points to the Ten Commandments, grace points to the cross. The weakness of the law is the flesh. The wonder of grace is the spirit. You see, the law, the law of biogenesis says that living matter arises only from other living matter. In other words, there can't be any life without pre-existing life. And, you know, before I, was, uh, before I went into full-time ministry, I used to work for a pharmaceutical company. And we manufactured several uh, healthcare products. And the final stage of the process was sterilization and filling and pasteurization, uh, pasteurization for certain products. And, and again, it was to uh, wipe out any living organism that was in that vial that would be injected into those who were sick. So once that product was sterilized, filled, and pasteurized, there was no life in that vial. None whatsoever. No amount of time, heat, or any other factor could produce life in that vial. You could beg, you could plead all you want, and it will never produce life. You see, there's no life without a pre-existing life. Life would have to be introduced into that vial to create life. If you pop that stopper and you let the outside air into that vial, now you've, now you've uh, allowed outside air into that vial, and now you're going to produce life from the, from the bacteria and the, and the germs that are in the air. You see, and, and so it's, think about the canned food industry that you keep in your cupboard for, for months because it's canned, it's sterile, there's no life in it. It might, may lose its, its flavor or the, the, the strength of the, of, the, of the proteins, but it's not going to create life unless there's a hole in it and outside life is introduced into it. You see, that was the basic weakness with the law. It couldn't produce spiritual life. No amount of doing this or doing that or, or doing this or, 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 you know, it can't create spiritual life. Paul tells us that the law is weak because of the flesh. The law could not give life. In other words, when you're driving down the freeway and you see that speed limit sign that says 65 miles an hour, how many of us are going 70? 75. 
You see, that, that, that sign is the law. It's telling you, you can't do that. That is drive over the speed limit, but you do. All right? Because that sign does not have the power to cause you to drive the speed limit. It's the law, but it doesn't have the power to give you to obey the law. That was the same with the law of the Old Testament. It was a law, but the law could not give you the power to obey the law. That's why Christ came. He gave us the ability to obey the laws. So no amount of doing this or doing that or not doing this or not doing that can create spiritual life. Again, Paul tells us that the law is weak because of the flesh. The the law couldn't give life. It could only point out a standard of behavior. You know what that law, that, that, that speed limit sign says? That you're a lawbreaker. Because we don't obey the law. It can't give us the power to obey the law. It proves to us that we are lawbreakers. And that's what the law did in the Old Testament. It was the standard. It was the behavior that God, it it could only point out a standard of behavior that God would accept. The law stated what kind of behavior God was looking for, but again, the law could not give us the, the, the power to do it. So it was a standard that we ourselves are powerless to perform in the flesh. The flesh can only go on reproducing its own sinful kind. In Genesis 1.11, the scripture says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself. You see, in all of creation, the things that were produced were after its kind. It didn't produ- you don't plant an orange seed, and guess what? An apple, seed, an apple tree pops up. You don't plant an apple seed and have an orange, seed pop, orange tree pop up. It will pop, whatever seed you plant, it will pop up. That's, it's, it's kind. It's kind is what comes after. The flesh might be present itself as religious flesh. We might look religious. We might have respectable flesh. We might have resourceful flesh, self-righteous flesh. But you know what? It's still stinking flesh. Paul calls it sinful flesh in Romans 8.3. Because the flesh is never more sinful than when it's trying to pass itself off as good. Listen to Paul says, what he says in Romans 3, 10 through 18 about this flesh. He gives gives a description of human nature. Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. So there's their conversation, their ungodly conversation. The poison of asps is under their lip, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is humanity's character. It's their conversation. It's the natural expression of the unsaved heart. And this is what's wrong with the world today. This is humanity's character. Remember the, the, uh, the, the lawyer who said, hey, good teacher. 
What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good but one, and that is God. It's no wonder that Paul asked the Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith? In other words, how did you receive the Holy Spirit, Galatians? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? And with the Holy Spirit, how did you receive the very life of God? Was it by trying? Was it by trusting? Was it, or was it by works of faith? By trying to keep the law or by surrendering to Jesus? How did you do it? This was the key point. When I met you, he said, when I met you on my first missionary journey, what did I preach to you? Did I tell you to be good? Did I tell you to obey the Ten Commandments? Did I tell you to get circumcised? Did I tell you to keep the Sabbath? Did I tell you to become converts of the Jewish religion and join the local synagogue? Is that how you were saved? Is that how you received the regenerating Holy Spirit of God? No way. He said, I preached Christ to you. And they that had believed had been regenerated, indwelt, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul asked them about their sanctification in verse 3. Notice. He said, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The butterfly is used many times as an example of the new birth. The caterpillar turns into a cocoon. Then it emerges with a new life as a, as a butterfly. And now it's able to do things it could never do before. Does that butterfly still try to live the same life it had before it was transformed? No. Does it still walk along the ground and crawl on the stems and branches to eat the leaves? No, it doesn't. Because now that new creation has wings and enables it to reach new heights. It flies victoriously and effortlessly, effortlessly, effortless, effortlessly. Man, I'll get it effortlessly. There we go. About, you know, it goes about wherever it wants. It seeks the sweet nectar from all the different flowers. It's been born again. It has a new life. The old one is gone. The new life of a butterfly can't be lived like the old life of a caterpillar. The Galatians, trying to earn their salvation, got them nowhere. They were saved by simply trusting in Jesus. They had a new life in him, and the Holy Spirit lived in their hearts. If they were to go back to the old infect, uh, uh, infect, uh, ineffective system of trying to do things in their own strength, it wouldn't work. No way. It didn't work when they were sinners seeking salvation, and it wouldn't work now that they were saints seeking salvation. The old law system could, could be summed up like this. What they were saying is this. I will do all that I can do to be good, and I will keep the commandments and obey the law. I, I, I. Me, me, me. But it didn't work. Then they found out the principle of faith, and they trusted in Jesus. And when they did, they were instantly regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The principle of obedience was embodied by Christ when he and all of the wonder of his sinless humanity 
put himself at the disposal of, of his father to be what his father wanted him to be and to do whatever his father wanted him to do. This was the principle that Jesus lived by when he was on the earth. And in the same way, we as human beings are to make all that we are completely available to the Lord Jesus as God. Now, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus can, fulf uh, can fulfill in all of us the laws and the demands. And then Paul questions the Galatians about suffering in verse 4. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He says, have you experienced so much for, uh, uh, for nothing? Surely it wasn't in vain, was it? The Galatian believers experienced a lot of persecution after they got saved. But here's what Paul's saying. If they weren't saved, as the legalists argued, then why were they being persecuted? The world usually doesn't persecute somebody unless they are of the world. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So if the Judaizers are right, then all of the suffering for Jesus was in vain. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul suffered a lot for the cause of Christ in Galatia on his first missionary journey. The Jews became his bitter enemies. They stirred up the Gentiles against him. And they were de determined to create mischief. They chased Paul from one city to another. They even stoned Paul and left him for dead. The book of Acts re uh, uh, doesn't record any suffering on the part of Paul's converts. But that doesn't mean that the new church didn't suffer persecution after Paul left the area. And it seems that the Galatians did suffer because Paul mentions it here. He suggests this here, here as being a fact. It would also seem that the Jews were behind the persecution of the Christians and that some of the Galatians were about to go over to the Judaizer side by means of circumcision to escape more suffering, joining their ranks. But Paul looked at doing such a thing as the height of foolishness. He said, where is the advantage of, of, be, of going back to where you came out of, what you came out of? What's the advantage of going back and being a, uh, joining the Judaizers? What's the advantage in that? He says, there's none. Judaism didn't have anything to offer. But on the other hand, what would they lose? Everything. Their suffering for Christ's sake would be rewarded one day. And one day they would actually reign with Christ. But Hebrews 10.38 says this, if anyone draws back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. And they would forfeit their reward and all the past sufferings for the Lord's sake would be in vain. Paul sincerely hoped that they wouldn't take that last step. If indeed it was in vain. It was another argument to add to the other arguments. And then last, Paul questions the Galatians about their signs in verse 5. Therefore, <clears throat> he, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul says, hey, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. He says it's because you believe the message that you heard about Jesus. 
Paul had personally performed miracles among them, especially in Lystra, where he healed a man who was lame from birth. Paul, Paul knew perfectly well that it wasn't by the works of the law that the man was healed. Luke also makes it clear when he makes that clear when he wrote about the incident in Acts chapter 14, 9 and 10. This is what he says to Paul, of Paul. Observing him, that is observing Paul, intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up, stay, uh, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and he walked. By faith, Paul healed that man who was lame. What if that man said to Paul, sir, it seems like you're a man of God. How can I be healed of my lameness? And what if Paul said this to him? Hey, just keep the commandments. Worship God. Stay away from idolatry. Don't blaspheme God's holy name. Honor the Sabbath in your parents. Don't murder anybody. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal anything. Stay away from pork. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. And you'll be okay. Would doing all of those things really have healed that man? No way. It would take a miracle to heal that lame man. It would take the Spirit of God to heal that lame man. So the only explanation for the healing of that man was God. So these miracles would include wonderful changes in the lives of the Christians, as well as the signs and wonders within the church fellowship. A skeptic asked a new Christian, who used to be a terrible drinker, he said, do you really believe the miracles in the Bibles? In the Bible? The believer said, of course I do. The skeptic laughed and he asked, do you mean you really believe Jesus could turn water into wine? He said, I sure do, because in my home he turned wine into food, clothing, and furniture. The new life that God had given the drunk. It is God who supplies the Spirit to you. Referring to God the Father. The word for supplies here is, a continu is in conti a continuous sense. In other words, the Father goes on and on ministering His Spirit to us so that we can go on and on living the new supernatural life which is ours because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wants his Galatian friends to remember that the Christian life is a supernatural life. And it can only be explained in terms of God. The only explanation for the Christian life is God. No such thing could be said about the kind of life that the Judaizers wanted to recruit the Christians in Galatia to. Paul was saying, come on, you guys. What's supernatural about getting circumcised? What's supernatural about observing the Sabbath? What's supernatural about eating certain kinds of food? Really, he's saying, what was supernatural about the Judaizers themselves? So what, what, what supposedly made them so super uh, spiritual? Had they come to Galatia like Paul did? When scouting out and establishing a new mission field? Did they routinely perform a lot of miracles there? You see, the, the law does not perform miracles. When Jesus was on the earth, he performed miracles. The legalists only criticized the miracles. They didn't perform the miracles. One time they criticized Jesus, remember, for healing uh, a man on the Sabbath day? 
They said people should come to, the, uh, come to the synagogue on other days for healing, but not on the Sabbath. But that was a bunch of baloney. Because none of them was performing healing miracles in the synagogue on any day of the week. Paul knew his enemies so well. He knew they had done nothing of the kind. They had done no miracles. All they had was a rule book as thick as a telephone book. Don't do this. Don't do that. The thicker the scribes and Pharisees could make the rule book with rules of do's and don'ts, all the better it was, the better they liked it. And all of it was to be done, think of it, in the power of the flesh. So this is how Paul questioned the Galatians. And it was a very thorough examination. It was totally designed to make them think about the foolishness of what they were doing. In short, we've seen that justification by faith was the experience of the Galatians. That's why he asked them, hey guys, what's gotten into you? You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and now you're going back into this, this, this foolish legalism? Going back to the laws to do this and to do that? Not do this, not do that? In closing... Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit three times in these first five verses. And he reminds the Galatians, hey guys, you didn't receive the Holy Spirit by the law. The Holy Spirit is evidence of conversion. And it's important to see that the gospel is true regardless of the experience of the Galatians or anybody else. We don't live by experiences. We live through, by the word of God. But the experiences that we do have, we need to check them against the word of God. The gospel is based on fact. And it deals with what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Experience will confirm the gospel, and that's what Paul is showing us here. The gospel is sufficient, and experience will confirm what the gospel teaches us. Father, we thank you so much for these, this, this text here, Lord, and, and the, wonderful, the wonderful things that Paul brought out, Lord. And Father, the things that we are to check ourselves against, God. Knowing how we came to Christ, knowing who we believe in, knowing how we got saved and, and who saved us, God. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the scriptures, God. And Father, we pray that you would continue to open the scriptures to us, God, that we would learn. Father, we would learn all that we need to learn, Father. And that we would just dig deep into the scriptures, Lord, as as the psalmist psalmist called them, a treasure. And when I think of treasure, I think of a treasure hunt and digging for treasure how we need to dig into the Bible to find those nuggets, that wonderful treasure that is so rewarding and will build our lives up so richly, Lord. And if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that Paul, through this message, has shown to you that it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done not about anything other than believing in Christ and the cross.
and seeking His forgiveness, confessing your sins to Him, realizing that you can't live the Christ life without Christ. You might be religious, you might be good in your own estimation, but that's that's not good enough to get you into the kingdom of God. So, Father, we pray now for those that, Lord, recognize their need for you, that they would confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and they'd be filled with the Spirit, Lord, and they'd begin that new life in you, Lord, like that butterfly who came out of that ugly little cocoon and became a beautiful new life, God. And may that take place in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.